Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice, and we're excited to share they've recently launched dedicated CPU instances. If you have build boxes, CI/CD, video encoding, machine learning, game servers, databases, data mining, or application servers that need to be full duty, 100% CPU all day, every day, then check out Linode's dedicated CPU instances. These instances are fully dedicated and shared with no one else. So there's no CPU steal or competing for these resources with other Linodes. Pricing is very competitive and starts out at 30 bucks a month. Learn more and get started at linode.com changelog. Again, linode.com changelog. From Changelog Media, this is Founders Talk, one-on-one conversations with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, lessons learned, and the struggles they go through to build and run their business. I'm Adam Stokoviak, host of this show and editor-in-chief of Changelog.com. Colin Billings is the founder and CEO of Oro, where they've built the very first truly intelligent home lighting system. It knows when you're in the room, and it adjusts the lights automatically for you. But Colin's path to starting this company was not a straight line at all. Like most innovative products, Oro has an interesting beginning. After all, he's going up against the giants. Oro was, from the onset, never really thought of as starting a company. For many companies, and I think Oro is one of them, it came from just a series of experiences and, and probably also a series of relationships that, that got us to where we are today. For me, that first experience was struggling with sleep. I was, this was back in 2014. I was having a real difficult time with sleep. It was a, it was a busy time at, at work at Stitcher and I just couldn't get myself to sleep at night. And I remember those days as sort of constantly getting Amazon boxes because I was buying every sleep aid you could possibly get on Amazon, whether it was Blackout shades, white noise machines, melatonin pills, new pillows. And on an off chance, a friend recommended an application for my computer called Flux. You know, it adjusts the, the brightness and the color temperature of, of your screen, uh, depending on where you are in the world and the time of day. I didn't know why it would work or if it would work, but I was willing to try anything. And I installed it on my computers. And then within about seven days, I was sleeping better. Wow. Like, you know, going from... You know, getting a few hours of sleep a night to you know, getting a nice solid set of hours, which for anybody who's doing startups is you know five or six hours, but right. at least they were peaceful amounts of sleep and I could go to sleep when I wanted to. So that was the first experience for me. I, I, I had no idea why it worked, but I had this sort of sparkle of it, uh, of something around lighting and, and whatever Flux was doing actually really helping me sleep better. Uh, and so to sort of fast forward about six months, um, we uh, finished the sale of, of Stitcher to, to Deezer, the French music company. Um, I decided to take some time off because I had been working on Stitcher for about seven years. And as I had a bit more free time, my curiosity from what Flux was doing just got the best of me. And I started just looking in, I mean, reading the Flux website finding out that there was this relationship between light and, and our bodies and 
and sort of not believing it. So trying to find scientific truths and figuring out what the community had, had sort of learned about that. And what I found was you know, relatively you know, hidden from mainstream view. There'd been a lot of work that's been done by, by the scientific community on how our bodies are you know, immensely dependent on the way we're exposed to light throughout the day. So that sort of link makes a lot of sense when you really sort of take a step back. Um, the human body is the product of about three and a half billion years of evolution on the planet Earth, all of which during the Earth is orbiting the sun and creating regular periods of light and dark. Um, and so our bodies have evolved to really rely on the natural rhythms of light that are a result of that. And only in the last 100 years had artificial light come onto the scene and you know, certainly brought an immense amount of helpful things, um, but was clearly adding to disruption of our biological sort of ecosystem, our homeostasis, um, and in particular sleep. Um, and so that was the first, uh, you know, inkling to me that lighting was extremely important. I mean, of course, I've been a photographer. I've done a lot of things in my life that, that sort of helped me understand that light is a really powerful component of our experiences. It matters in literally every moment of our lives. But I didn't understand how much it affected us in ways that, that may not be perceptible um, to, to our minds, but actually to our bodies. Um, and so at that point, I, I started sort of thinking about, uh, you know, how would I do flux for my house? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, it, I had time, you know, I was like, you know, I needed a hobby or something to keep the days busy and finish my reading. And I thought for certain, you know, I guess as, as sort of everybody who does sort of these things that you know, there were smart bulbs and smart switches and other things out there in the world of time uh, that that I should should be able to go to Best Buy or go to Amazon and buy a bunch of these. And then I could string them together, maybe write a little code, do a couple of different things. To, to get my lights to, you know, be soft in the mornings, bright, you know, throughout the day, dim in the evenings, um, and really sort of provide what was a plug and play experience on my computer for the lights in my home. That was the, the, the sort of first foray into smart lighting or, you know, connected lighting, whatever people want to call it. And it was also sort of an immediate experience of pain. You know, light bulbs, uh, you know, turn off when you turn the light switch off. So smart bulbs become dumb instantaneously. I had to control all these different apps. Um, they were really slow. Um, and that was really where I learned sort of how much was yet to be done in, in lighting in our homes relative to how much uh, they could improve our lives. So the, the core of Oro as a product is a hardware device, a switch, not lighting. And software, obviously. I think that, that the Oro switch is the, the core ingredient to Oro. The Oro switch is a switch like no other. It's got four sensors, a microprocessor, touchscreen, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. It's got more in common with a smartphone than it does with a light switch. But that is all really in service of experiences in our homes that, that should be helpful to us and help us live our lives with our loved ones in, in ways that we want right. rather than thinking about managing our home. Yeah. Uh, and in, in the case of lighting, that's one thing that you manage every day. The average person will touch a light switch about 50 times a day. Um, that's because light is not evenly distributed throughout the day and you do different things. Um, and if you really step back and think about how often you're adjusting your lights, you're doing it all the time. Uh, and, and the light switch, um, 
as a product, it has to take care of its job number one, first and foremost. And that's why we focused on lighting. And, and with Oro today, uh, you essentially plug an Oro switch into the wall. Uh, you use it for a couple of days and it'll learn what your preferences for lighting are at different moments and different activities and automatically turn the lights on when you enter the room to the right level and off when you leave. So you never have to think about your lights again. But that is is really the first step um, for us um, yeah. because you know, no one cares about a device in your home that does something else other than lighting if it is also a light switch and does a bad job at it. How, uh, how good do you think you, you would be at describing circadian rhythm? Pretty good. I mean, Pretty I'm not good. a scientist, um, <laughs> but uh, the... Just for the listeners to catch up, you know, like this, I want to kind of zoom back to what you just described with, you know, your experiences and relationships, but then more importantly, the scientific side of things, which I think as human beings, we, we realize there's lots of science that goes into our body. Obviously, you've got a, a very complex brain, you know, trillions of, of uh, neural connections, all these different things. Uh, you see the world via light that goes from a, you know, I, I guess just the way I don't really know how to describe light, but the way your brain perceives that there's lots of really interesting things that go into just being a human being and being able to see the world through eyeballs. Um, and then how that that then affects us, you know, via light, as you mentioned you know, all of humanity, all of its time, but only in the last hundred years was artificial light introduced. And that disrupted this constant flow we call a circadian rhythm, which is our, as you'd mentioned, our, our adaptation to, to, you know, light entering the world, which is how we you know, like go into a dark room. You don't know where you're at, right? You need light as a human being to navigate the world. So we just sort of just take it for granted. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I can talk uh, quite a bit about it, but I, I could also share with you a number of places that people could go read. Um, but the, the sort of the semi-pro version of circadian lighting, I think, is it starts with first understanding the role of, of sleep in our bodies. Mm. Right. So, yeah. you know, our lives are sort of spent um, cycling between an awake period and a sleep period. And the, the sleep period is immensely uh, important. In, uh, I was recently reading a book by um, this gentleman whose last name is Walker, who just released a, a very popular book on sleep. And I thought the way that he sort of referred to sleep was pretty interesting. And, and he called sleep the, the only reason why we don't die. I can agree with that. Um, and, and, and sleep, you know, is, is so I think what I take from that is that sleep is a sort of immensely important regenerative state for our body. Right. You know, while we're sleeping, you know, the car's in the garage, but the engine's still running. Your body is doing all types of things. Your mind is, is making memories. It's allowing stress hormones to relax so your, your cells aren't going haywire constantly. You know, this, this period of sleep that you get in the evenings or whenever you happen to get it um, is what allows our body to sort of recoup uh, itself. I mean, I think they even have studies now or at least... They don't study this, but they document it where you don't sleep for six or seven days or people just die. Um, this is this thing that's really, really important to us. And so how our body goes into the sleep phase is really where the connection with light occurs. And so the, you know, as I said, you know, the earth is orbiting the sun sort of at a regular uh, cycle. And those light uh, you know, photons, which are emitted by the sun, reach our bodies um, and they help 
maintain what is called the circadian rhythm, which is our, our sort of hormonal balance that helps regulate our body's movement from you know, awake cycle to sleep cycle and then back again. And underlying that transition is, is really sort of two hormones that are critically important. Um, one is called cortisol, which is a, a low-level stress hormone, uh, sort of the baby brother of adrenaline. And another one is, is something people probably commonly connect with sleep is called melatonin. Um, and those things work in a really, really interesting way, which is when uh, you experience blue light or what was, a, was traditionally you know, sunlight, your body starts to produce cortisol. Uh, cortisol increases your respiration, heart rate, neural activity. All of this starts to wake your body up. Um, and that was sort of evolutionarily important because during the day, you needed to go out as a you know, human um, or you know, cells even way back before we had sort of human species and, and use the day for sort of evolutionary um, reproductive reasons. And so cortisol is stimulated by, by things that appear like sunlight um, and is really important for you to keep your energy up and your focus up and, and, and really to, to sort of go about your, your wake cycle. But cortisol has sort of this interesting behavior, which is uh, when your body is producing cortisol, it's not producing melatonin. Uh, and so if you need to go to sleep, uh, melatonin is the critical hormone that you need um, dominant in your body. It's sort of the, the, the gatekeeper or the starting gun for sleep, if you will. Um, and so if your body is being stimulated by stress or you know, experiencing light um, and producing cortisol, it is by definition not producing melatonin. Um, it's delaying the onset of melatonin. Um, and so as you sort of get into the evenings in, in sort of the pre-artificial light phase, you'd have a sunset. Um, and the sunset would be actually the absence of light, um, which it has been determined what melatonin is triggered by. So not just the absence of blue spectrum light, um, but actually the absence of all light together. Um, you know, just if you have to have light, not having blue spectrum light in the evenings is good because it's not stimulating as much cortisol and therefore letting um, your melatonin begin to be produced. And so, you know, as you go into your evening, you know, this is why the you know, National Sleep Foundation and everybody else recommends dim your lights down before you go to bed. Right. That, that's not just to sort of get you calm. It's actually to calm your body. Because as you remove light from your environment in the evenings, you allow your body to begin producing melatonin, which means that your body can, can actually enter the sleep phase when, when it's sort of sufficiently calmed down and you're able to, to sort of calm your mind as well and get to sleep. How familiar do you think the general public is? Like, let's say everyday consumers. And even, you know, even knowledge workers, you know, how a lot of us work from home these days is becoming more and more common to have distributed teams or, you know, be have a headquarters in New York and San Francisco and have, you know, team members throughout the entire world. You know, how not that that's like crucial to this question, but like I'm curious <laughs> what your thoughts are around how aware we are of light impacting those two particular hormones, cortisol and melatonin to Essentially, I mean, those are the core hormones that our brain triggers to our body to to secrete or to emit to generate, as you'd mentioned, you know, certain desires, which one is awakeness or one is sleepness, you know, or, or you know, sleep times uh, or, or just calm time, so to speak. How aware do you think people are? I mean, based on your knowledge with this company and, and building this product, are just everyday people aware of this phenomenon that that makes up everyday life? I think we're on the we're sort of reaching the place where the the, the slope of awareness becomes you know much higher. Um, I wouldn't say that it's everybody understands it, but I would actually say that most people are having experiences that are proving it out 
in their daily lives, right? So Flux sort of eventually underwrote the introduction of things like Night Shift on iPhone. Um, and I think there's one, there was one, an app called Twilight, and now it's actually built into the operating system uh, on, on Android that, that essentially does this around the light in, on our devices. Um, and in particular, our smartphones. And so not that many, you know, I wouldn't say 100% of people know about those features, but I would say that 100% of people that I've ever told, hey, turn on Night Shift on your iPhone and then come back to them four or five days later and say, hey, what do you think? They're like, oh my God, I can't believe I was not using this before and I'm always going to use it. Yeah. Um, so so I think that there are ways that, uh, that this and, and sort of, you know, in particular, sort of the devices we use every day is, is really starting to become a, a common, a more common experience. Um, I also think that that the the movement towards wellness or health is really sort of driving uh, awareness as well. Uh, for a long time, health was all about nutrition and exercise. Really, in the last three, four, five years, it's become about health. You know, health has become nutrition, exercise, and sleep. And so if you're really working on your sleep, you know, you quickly find your way to uh, how can I, can I do things that help promote my sleep and of that at the top of the list and, and probably position one or position two is now yeah. your light exposure. If you find somebody with uh, the same focus and intention on their sleep patterns as they are on their work patterns or their success, you're probably going to find a, you know, a version of a superhuman whether it's, you know, mentally or physically, you know, because the greatest athletes, the greatest minds tend to have serious intention when it comes to rest, generally. Yeah, when you look at professional athletes, when you look at, you know, Dave Asprey and the Bulletproof Executive yeah. and people that are that are sort of, you know, for a long time, the, I think, categorized as looking for peak performance, they've had very definite sleep programs in their, in their, in their sort of daily routine. Uh, and optimizing or improving sleep, um, and doing everything that it can, sort of within the, the within reason, to get to better better sleep, has been been a, a high priority for them. Uh, I, I think that part of what we saw with Oro was that you know that is the that is not the norm. Um, more people want to set it and forget it. Experience um, they want to you know want to be able to have the benefits with as little investment as possible, um, as most consumers do. And, you know, one of the reasons why we designed Oro to be the way that it is today is that we, we wanted it to just sort of seamlessly happen in your background, just like turning on night shift for your home. Mm -hmm. So would you say that uh, as we peel back the layers to what you've been doing with Oro, that you're not simply creating, uh, as I generalized it earlier, a switch, just a switch for the wall and some software. You're, this is really capitalizing on a movement, as you mentioned, of wellness, a desire for wellness, you know, or for peak performance or for those who are. I think this day and age with the advent of Instagram and just the fact that we are so well connected these days that people are more and more aware of our, our health and wellness than we had ever been before. One, we're hyper connected to the point that we can transfer and share knowledge around like everything from diets to sleep patterns to lighting as, as you're involved in. But is it safe to say that you're more than just simply a hardware software company and a company that cares about lighting? It's more than that for you? How would you describe it? I would say that that lighting and how it connects to our health and wellness was for many of us at Oro our entrance into lighting. Um, I would say that that is a core part of of what we do for your um, home um, on a daily basis. Right? right, lighting matters in every day. But as 
all things do, once you start building things, you realize that there's more to the picture than uh, you maybe initially thought. Um, and for us, that that sort of more to the picture came into realizing the the import of the location of the light switch in your home and actually helping you with things that both include all of the lighting throughout your day, but many other things that you do at home. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that, that lighting is job number one for a light switch. And that's why we are are the best one at doing that. Um, it's the the first reason that you are going to think about getting, you know, some type of improved product for your home. Um, but after you have an aura switch in, in, in a room in your home or in a couple of rooms in your house, there's actually quite a bit more that the, that the, the Oro system can do for you. Um, and that's really, you know, about software. Uh, I, I would say, what is our ambition? Our ambition is to help people live um, better lives at home. Lighting is a core aspect of that, but there are many other things, including not having to carry and be connected to your cell phone constantly. Uh, that Oro enables for you that um, we hope also improve your life. What is it that made you make this? And I'm I'm just assuming this because every business has to start has to start somewhere. But you, know, you got a business to consumer relationship at this point, and you're mentioning connected homes. That seems like the not so much the easy win because I don't want to I don't want to dumb down what you're doing, but that there's other opportunities in enterprise and in in you know industrial spaces or I'm thinking like museums I'm sure they've already have things like this but like beyond just the home why did you laser focus on the home versus commercial applications or have you or are you just starting somewhere we're just starting somewhere there are light switches in every building in almost every room um, across the planet um, and you know, if you take a step back and sort of get away from the specific product experiences, right. what an Oro does is sort of upgrade a junction box where you know a traditional light switch was normally placed with you know a a, a device that's incredibly capable. Um, it's got sensors that understand occupancy and presence in rooms and, and the types of activities there. It has interfaces, including you know microphones, a speaker, and a touchscreen. It has connectivity, um, so it can connect that room to, to other things. And it has its own processor, so distributed sort of intelligence at the edge there as well. Um, we actually see and have heard from a number of people um, about how they could use you know, the Oro as a platform for other types of experiences that they're looking to, to bring in, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, one example, you know, sort of a little bit away from the lighting side is that as people in our population grow or grow older, there's uh, more and more places that are that are sort of there to sort of help and and sort of not full time managed you know nursing homes, but there are places where older individuals can go go live and be in a community. Um, but one aspect of what they have to do every day is make sure that their community is healthy and that the people are all right. And they do that today by sending a person around to check in with their residents every day. If you had a home that actually knew you were moving and knew that those patterns were matching sort of regular patterns that you had done before when you're healthy, they would actually not have to, to go in there and check on you and, and let you sort of have a peaceful day. And so that's just one example of how sort of sensors and connectivity in the light switch location has a lot of other interesting applications.
This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. Resolve your errors and minutes into public confidence. Catch your errors in your software before your users do. And if you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they want to give you $100 to donate to open source via Open Collective. And all you got to do is go to rollbar.com slash changelog, sign up, integrate Rollbar into your app. And once you do that, they'll give you $100 to donate to open source. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Let's break down the product itself then, because uh, I'm looking at it and I'm discovering more and more as I peel back the layers. So it's, you compared it to a smartphone and it's basically an installed smartphone, for lack of better terms, into where you, you typically would have a light switch where it's a, you know, common size, but a portion of that is a touch screen. And that, that screen can literally be just like your iPhone or Android phone or any other smartphone that has an infinite display option, like whatever you program it to display it displays, right? Is that an easy way to describe the aesthetics of an Oro? Yeah, it's a, the screen on the front is about the size of two sort of smartwatches. So it's a, it's a small display, but it's an incredibly useful one. Right. And it's, you know, extremely dynamic, right? You know, one of the things that Steve Jobs said uh, when he was introducing the iPhone that I, I happened to listen to that maybe a couple months ago, and I, I, I saw something incredibly sort of insightful there was that not every application requires the same interface, right? And that's what, you know, moving from a physical keyboard to a touchscreen enabled was that, you know, you could have very different experiences depending on the use case or the, 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 the task that a person was trying to complete. And so when we think about light switches, light switches live in your home for 10, 20 years. It, it was important for us that, that this switch that you buy today remain incredibly relevant 10 years from now. And the way you do that is with a screen as an interface. Um, and, you know, also I think we'll see a lot more of the home move towards some component of, of sort of voice control or voice interaction. And so that's why we have microphones and speakers. But if you look at the Oro Switch, the Oro Switch looks like a light switch. Yeah, uh, it's a seamless replacement. You can buy one and put it on the middle of your, you know, triple gang light switch, you know, your faceplate, and it's it's really easy to get started. But if you were to look at the insides, it looks way more like an iPhone or uh, you know, top of the top of the line Android phone. It's got a you know, dual core, almost a gigahertz of processing inside of it. It's got flash. It's got. I mean, it is a phone in a different form factor. Wow. So that's the part I didn't get to dig into yet is the, and maybe consumers don't care, but hackers or, or the curious folks that listen to the show care about is the, is just that there. So do you share that information on the, uh, oral website at all by any chance? Like the, the details behind the specs of it? The exact specs of every single thing in there is not, I think on the website just yet, but it's definitely something that people have been asking about. Right. So planning putting it up. I almost think it's it's almost like an iPhone, like you can even capitalize on the experience of buying an iPhone or an Android or any smartphone out there, not to not to just choose Apple products, but that, uh, you know, 
they don't just say, hey, here's the phone. They say, here's the phone with a, uh, a certain type of DPI display or, you know, the advent of retina was a big deal to smartphones and also, you know, different things inside of it technology wise. But you said before that consumers who are wanting potentially the, the experience you're trying to drive with Oro is that they want, you know, a somewhat hands-off, hands-free automated process, right? That's right. And I think that, you know, there are- You got to uh, find the balance in there as a product developer. Correct. I, I think that there's, uh, well, one is that you have to get your product out in the world. Once you have your product out in the world, you have a set of feedback, whether it's the thing that controls your decision making or not, mm-hmm. um, that you can then start to use as to sort of prioritize you know, how you're going to build your product you know, beyond where it is today. And, and yeah. that's what we've been doing you know, this, this past year. Um, I think the to, to just sort of give you a sense of how the Anoro switch will evolve over time, I think, you know, expanding on the the idea of what smartphones have been for us and then applying to the home is a sort of way to do that. Um, you know, we transitioned from, you know, sort of much less capable mobile phones, whether that was a Treo or a Blackberry, or for me, it was one of those old Nokia brick phones. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the smartphone, right? And that that transition has largely defined all aspects of our experiences over the last decade. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I mean, I, I think the the smartphone era, we were talking even in the pre-call with your experience at Stitcher, you know, how that has affected podcasts. So in the same way that the advent of smartphones and the ubiquity of them in consumers' hands or just people's hands have totally changed the world of podcasting. So for would be the same way that this could apply to the home. That's right. I think the, you know, what, what we resulted with from the smartphone was really not even a phone anymore, right? right. It, it was a computing platform device yeah. that allowed us to uh, start to connect and now sort of connect with anything that we want or need outside of the home. Right. And, and that's because the smartphone's in our pocket constantly when we're outside of the house. And, you know, back to the, the sort of thread about realizing you're building something different, you know, sort of midstream than you maybe thought you were in the beginning. What we realized is that inside the home, the smartphone is sort of failing as the platform for computing. Yes, it sure is. Yeah. Right. You know, it sort of there's structural reasons like you have to charge your phone. Right. So you have to put it on a charger. Um, or for sort of social or psychological reasons, you want to put your phone down. You want to get, well, there's things that are connected to your phone that you want to get away from, or, or you want to focus on being with the people that you love while you're at home. And so sort of the phone comes out of our pocket and goes onto a table or a bed or wherever you, you put it when you come home. And the thing that doesn't stop when you do that is your desire or interest in connecting with a certain set of things that really make your life at home better. Um, and so the gap there is, I think, the gap that Oro ultimately comes to fill for you after it's taken care of your lighting. Um, and, and that gap and that, that sort of interest um, and need for that, I think, is shown by things like smart speakers. Right? So one in two American households is going to have a smart speaker by the end of this year. Uh, at least that's what you know, the analysts say, whether wow. you believe them or not. Um, like, it's cool to have a smart speaker, right? but there has to be another reason for in having that type of penetration. Um, and when you step back and you think, you know, I can do most of the things that I do with an Echo or a Google Home 
like speaker on my phone, then there's a reason why that speaker or that 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 place for connectivity, connection, and interaction is having uh, so much interest, right? It, it's you can go get your phone off of the charger, go to your timer app, set a timer for two minutes, and run your timer on your phone. You can totally do that. No one's like there. There's totally a way to do it, right? But it's just infinitely easier to be standing in any room that you're in and say, hey, Alexa, set a timer for two minutes. And that ease and convenience sort of de- demonstrates the power of convenience or ease that that has for people. And so we think that smart speakers are are super interesting. I and mean, actually, Oro you know, sort of can serve as a replacement for a smart speaker in rooms where you don't want to have a speaker itself. It's got two microphones, uh, a speaker, an internet connection. It has Alexa built in. Uh, you can really... You can really do the same thing you can do with a smart speaker other than play music with the, with the Oro switch. But then ultimately, you know, sort of if you want to compare the transition that we had with the mobile phone to what a potential transition would look like in the home, you need the right sensors, you need ubiquity across the home, you need power, right? Because these devices need to be on. Um, you need a sort of a, a, an interface or something that is easy for people to interact with um, in the ways that they want to and can evolve as, as sort of experiences demand it. And we actually think that the light switch um, as a location is the thing that has the brightest future for that in the home. Yeah. It's interesting to think about that because I'm a, sman, a fan of, I almost missed on my speech there, thinking about smart things. I'm a sman. I'm a fan of smart things. And I've got a plan to start to integrate some of this stuff. And so one of my next uh, things on my list to do is a Leviton Universal Dimmer. But that thing in comparison to, say, the direction Oro is taking is like night and day, right? Like you've got this sort of dumb analog switch that connects to my home network. And then I've got, say, a smart hub or something like that connects elsewhere. And therefore, I can begin to control these things with my iPhone or other devices or whatever. But, you know, I would so much rather, and I guess it depends on the the application in each room, but, you know, at a $200 price tag for an Oro versus, say, I think, Leviton's maybe in the hundred dollar range. So you're talking about double the price, but you're getting what it seems to me is like a smartphone in your wall. And I may not need a smartphone, but what I need is a never ending infinite interface that can be anything I want it to be. And so this display for you begins to become uh, available in most of the core areas in somebody's home. My next thing is like, you know, are we moving towards say a home operating system? It feels like we're moving there. Things are there that you got platforms like smart things you've got HomeKit for apple devices things like that you've got alexa and voice control but there hasn't seemed to be a an establishment of like put this device next to your router or on your connected interface and then now put oros around the house is that a direction you're going or am i crazy thinking that that's the the better way to go i think i want i want a brain for my home the oro is like a brain for every room in your house okay Right. Um, and so, I mean, it's eyes, ears, and a brain, right? So uh, you put an Oro switch in, you know, the room where you, you spend a lot of time. Um, we see people put, you know, three or four of them across the home in, in the major rooms. Um, and the first thing that happens is you never think about your lights again. Within about a week, we're controlling 90% of all of your lighting changes in those rooms. Um, and we're making three times as many lighting changes as you would normally make. Um, so we're actually doing a better job of lighting than you would have done on your own. But then with that, you have, you know, now think of it, if there's a, a microprocessor, there's a, there, there is a platform, a hardware platform for software that now lives in every, every room that an Oro is in. 
Um, and the question becomes sort of how, how that, um, you know, integrates with the other things that are, that are interesting to you in your home, right? So, right. you know, if you have a smart doorbell, right, if you of these video doorbells from Ring or August or otherwise, um, when someone rings your doorbell, uh, what happens, right? You get a notification on your phone. But actually, Oro has a screen, has an internet connection, and it knows what room you're in. That's interesting because it has a presence awareness. Um, and it can actually show you, shows you that feed right. of what's going on in your doorbell and, and a small interface for you know, push to talk or unlock the door. If you have a, a, you know, an automated you know, door lock of some kind, you really sort of start to pull you know, the, the necessary pieces of those sort of controls and interactions. Um, off of that, right? It, or, or say you want to enter, like you, you know, drop in from your bedroom to the kitchen to ask when breakfast is going to be ready. You know, microphone, speaker, and you can just intercom from one or a switch to the other. There is really all the ingredients that you need for a sort of a much more capable home, improved by the fact that it understands how you use your house, right? And, yeah. and that's, I, I think, where we start to go over the long term is starting to connect not just the things that you do manually, but the things that you do regularly based on patterns and have them actually happen for you. And then provide that, that layer that, that is the actual manual controls via the screen or otherwise. The one thing to point out that I, I think hopefully, uh, you know, it's one thing that we're interested in advocating for, you know, through our products and, and the ways that we go is that things like smart things and a lot of these other connected home platforms, they're actually sort of cloud architectures, right? So you have really sort of naive controls or sensors that live in your home and they require talking to the cloud to figure out, hey, what does this mean? Right. Um, with Oro... It's the smart edge devices then. Yeah. With Oro, all of that happens locally in your home, right? And that's why you need... Because I mean, my next question is like, why do you need to have so much power in the individual switches? And now it makes a bit more sense. So help me unravel that because that's, that's a big part of the privacy issues that people have with oh my gosh, tell me one more connected device I could put on my wall or whatever, you know, where, you know, I think the concern begins to, once you know so much about my personal circadian rhythm, uh, my conditions of lighting and or all the other things, the uh, aura will begin to allow me to operate my home. I now have the concern, obviously, of where that data is going, which history has shown we've had many data breaches. We've even had acquisitions that turned bad or just, you know, a lot of the stuff in, in the news with Facebook with you know, how things are being used and just different concerns. Like people are more and more, especially in the United States, hyper aware of privacy concerns when it comes to adding one more smart device into my house. We believe that that is a choice you shouldn't have to make. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, Oro really only uses the cloud for, for two things. Um, one is to sort of set up your device and make sure that it's you know, an authentic Oro device and, and get everything sort of set up with your home and, and getting that, that registered and activated. Um, and then if you want to, you can use the phone to connect to your Oro switches and control them remotely. Everything else happens on the switch. Uh, and we actually hope that that vein is really what becomes the sort of main path for people with connected so all the all the storage or data that it collects or or needs to, you know, store because there's going to be some things accumulated, right? That you learn. So in, to, in order to learn about me and my patterns or my lighting conditions, you're going to need to store that data somewhere. So that data lives locally, not in the cloud. Correct. It's a distributed system. You know, I can walk into my home today and rip the router out, and my lights will do exactly the same thing that they've always done, and they'll continue to learn about me. Really interesting. So Wi-Fi is optional. 
you know, necessary, but optional. For It adds additional functionality, right? right. If you want to talk to Alexa, you obviously need to talk to Alexa's cloud and you need an internet connection to do that. Uh, but let's talk about voice assistants for a second. You know, it's only, I'm trying to think, the last time I looked, it's like you can run a local voice assistant on 250 megs and recognize 50 commands and four speakers. Hmm. Like if you had for you know three or four hours in your home, you have as much processing power as your laptop. And now all of a sudden your home is just smart in and of itself. And then the question is what you can localize on the device or the system of devices that that is helpful. And the more and more you localize it on the edge, the more and more private the system becomes. This episode is brought to you by Discover.Bot. Learn everything there is to know about bots at discover.bot slash founders talk. Discover.Bot was built by Amazon Registry Services as an online community for bot creators and makers of all skill levels to learn from one another, to share stories, and they regularly publish guides and resources to answer questions like how to set up payments to your bot, how to stop shopping cart abandonment, what KPIs are worth measuring, how to write an engaging chat bot dialogue. You can even register .bot domains there. Learn more and explore this huge library of bot resources at discover.bot. Again, We've talked knee deep about product and I, and I love this conversation. It, it would not be a true Founders Talk episode if we did not dig into, my gosh, how in the world did you do this? Because I'm thinking like, okay, and I don't want to assume what your your independent wealth is like or or lack thereof, but you know you went from VP of product at Stitcher. Uh, you were part of the, from what I understand, you were there from the beginning to the end in terms of the acquisition, not the end of the company because it's still there. Uh, you, you talked about your sleep patterns, learned about Flux, all this good stuff. How in the world did you create a hardware company and a software company in one? Or is that you're new, you're now building a platform? These screens, I mean, there's lots of technology. You went from VP of product to, you know, founder and CEO of Oro. How did you do that? What, how did you really learn, I guess, how to build this company is probably the easiest way. Where do we begin to talk about building this company? The capital requirements, the, you'd mentioned the experiences and, and relationships earlier on in the conversation, how that was crucial. Can you kind of unravel that for me? Yeah. Um, <laughs> through a lot of uh, wounds <laughs> is how you build a company. Okay. You know, I think, I think resilient, share the wounds, share the wounds. I think, I think resilience is the most important thing. Uh, it was particularly important for me because I was a, I was a first time sort of hardware founder. It was my first hardware company. So it was an entirely new realm um, from Stitcher, which was software and mobile apps and, and content. Um, I think, the way that I went about approaching sort of the early days at Oro came from, you know, a lot of the things I learned at, at sort of helping to build Stitcher, which was, you know, you need to get as far as you possibly can uh, with the least amount of help at every stage. And raising money, I mean, there's all kinds of talk about, you know, there's lots of money out there and all those other things. But, you know, I think that there's... There's early money, but then there's it's hard to get the sort of real money that you need to actually sort of take it to the next level. Um, and so for us at Oro, we did that uh, early on by trying to bootstrap everything we could. Um, 
um, you know, our, our sort of first prototype was built with, you know, me paying out of pocket to a few engineers that did things that I couldn't get them to do for free, working for free, uh, trying to just get to a place where we could understand what was possible uh, in terms of, of the lighting aspect, because, you know, a light switch is nothing if it doesn't do lighting really well. That led us to, I think, essentially demonstrate capability, which is, I think, the sort of first part of, of early money is, you know, are these people, is their idea good, which is, you know, not that hard to come up with a good idea. Um, I think the, the, the thing that people look a lot more closely at is, are these the right people to do this? Can they do this? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we had, we, we basically, you know, ate <laughs> very little in terms of what we were, you know, paying ourselves to get to, look, we can do this. Um, and that was three of us in the, in the early days. And we got to our first tiny check, um, you know, relatively to these days, which was, you know, $500,000, um, you know, led by Jerry Yang, the former founder of Yahoo. And I think he believed our story and he looked at us and said, these guys, are, you know, they're credible enough to get to the next step. Um, let's see what they can do with a small check. The, the, the hope for us was sort of always to try to take the least amount of money that we needed to, you know, at fair valuations, because um, I have had a number of friends over the time that sort of had been fortunate enough to raise sort of really big rounds at very high valuations, which sort of become an albatross sort of downstream. Uh, big checks mean big expectations, and I think it's always better to underpromise and overdeliver, um, you know, or or promise something realistic that has a legitimate rationale for getting you to the next step of building your company. Um, and for us, um, that first check was like we're going to build the first real prototype for Aura. Um, You know, it's not going to be sort of hobby parts and other things. We're going to go build something that actually can get installed in the walls and can show you what it's like to walk around your house and have your lights automatically be adjusted for you by, you know, a switch that's smarter than anything that's ever existed before. And and so that, that was what we did for the sort of remainder of 2016. You know, we sort of did that in the, in the late 2015. We did that for a year. And, you know, it's always tough as a CEO to sort of look around and know that you're, you're just being the, the cheapest person on the planet. Um, but, you know, we put every dollar that we had into advancing the product, which was, you know, going to be our company. Um, we had six engineers at this point and we had, you know, we had sort of a private goal of, um, before we commit our lives to this for the next X number of years, like we got to believe that this is like a thing that people care about. Um, that if you have it, something like Oro in your home, that you're going to care about that enough to buy more or tell your friends. Um, and it's not just a product that you know people like to have, but once you have it, you sort of have to have it. And so that was really the sort of second phase. And we did that on a, you know, like I said, a very small amount of money. And then, you know, ultimately we got to the stage where we had done that and we were out trying to raise money. And this was the sort of tail end of the halo of Kickstarter, right? So mm-hmm. um, in the early days of Kickstarter, you could put up like, you know, a video on Kickstarter that was basically renderings of a hardware product um, and you would raise a couple million dollars. That quickly sort of went by the wayside as people realized that those companies were not really companies. Um, you know, there are multiple sort of high profile failures of people that just failed to ship their products. 
um, or misrepresented where they were in their product development phase. Um, and I think investors at the time had sort of, you know, are always hungry for as much information as they possibly can get and, you know, had used Kickstarter as a signal of early demand, had sort of stopped making investments based on, on, hey, you had a successful Kickstarter. We're going to, we're going to give you a lot of money so you can go out and fulfill like that interest. Um, so in, you know, the late, 2016 period, it was just a super tough time to start a, a hardware company um, for a Series A round. Uh, and I was a first time sort of leader of a hardware company. So I was, you know, of course, learning something immensely new every day. And I had to make sure that I was was showing what I had learned when I talked to people. And it was just really difficult, I think, mm-hmm. raising that, that round. I mean, I think that um, the climate was tough for hardware. The you know, there, are, there have been some parts for me and, you know, you just have to keep out going out every day until you find uh, two, three, four people that actually believe what you're saying, right? You know, and, and I, I think early on, you know, most of these um, hardware companies are, are built on, you know, being able to communicate a vision, uh, telling the story of where you're going to be, and then, you know, backing that up with as much proof as you can have based on, on the effort that you spent. It's really interesting to think about that from that perspective that you're <clears throat> a first-time hardware founder. I'm not very familiar with the the climate of 2016. What makes it a difficult year for or different time period for creating a hardware company? But I'm kind of curious when you zoom back, like it, it, as you look over the last couple of years, you're a month into a launch. Uh, you know, roughly five to six months of a beta period with with. Uh, you know, I'm not even sure how big the beta beta group was. Uh, a couple of years with some version of it in your home or others' homes who trust you enough to say, hey, if you put this device in your wall, it probably won't catch fire. It'll actually be pretty smart and we'll eventually build a company around it. But you're at a point now where you can look back, given the, you know, as you'd mentioned, the, the bruises, the scars, the wounds, as you'd mentioned. What are some of the core lessons learned that got you through this period to today which, you know, still isn't, you know, in quote success. I assume it, it's going to be because I love the direction you're going, but it's still yet to be proven, right? Like you're a month into a launch with a, a great future ahead of you. What, le- what lessons are core to you that you've learned that, that you can share with other founders that are listening to this right now? Um, I think that there are two that I continue to remind myself to live up to. Um, the one is put every dollar you possibly can into making whatever it is that you're building better. And so that comes at, at investing in your team, that comes in investing in learning, that comes in investing in, uh, you know, in everything that it takes for you to get your product to a place where, where people love it. Everything else is just, in my opinion, window dressing. Mm. And I, I think that, you know, when I look back and I, if I think I had made, you know, I mean, we started in the front of my apartment, um, then we moved to a garage, and then only when we you know, had more people and could use the bathrooms um, and fit in the garage did we move out of the garage. And you, know, you just have to run it as, as lean as you possibly can. I call it learning to be like a cockroach. Right. You know, there's lots of famous posts out there about, you know, you're dead until you're not and all these other things. And I think that those things are really, really true. The leaner you can keep it, the longer you can go, the more you can learn, wow. the more you can build. And, you know, high burning companies that sort of want to try to compete on salary and try to, 
you know, have fancy perks that are just going to burn that up faster. And that by definition means you're going to have less progress the next time you're in need of raising capital. Um, so, you know, make sure you're really careful about every way you spend your money. The second is that you can build a, that you can build a, a, a really great culture and team, you know, with, just by putting effort in that and that that will come back to help you, right? I mean, every time, you know, we took longer to ship our product as most hardware companies do, uh, all types of other things where there are different levels of adversity along the way. And the only way we as a company could have possibly gotten through that is if we had a strong sense of team and people believed in the future. You know, I, I think that those two relate in some ways. We've never competed on 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 salary. We've you know been extremely fair and transparent about how we did salary. And we said, look, like we have to get um, to the next stage before we can you know be competing with the major technology companies. Um, if if that's not something that works for a person who's going to join our team, then they're probably not going to be a good team addition um, to the overall culture. And that hurts. Right. That hurts a lot. That's so that's, that right there alone is uh, is an intense lesson right there alone. And not that you choose people based on what they can accept because of everyone needs to sacrifice coming into a team um, is being able to be wise enough to and even maybe even patient enough to allow team members to join or depart as those particular conditions change because not everybody has the same financial constraints or dreams yep. that you may have, right? They may not have the same level of thick skin or resilience or determination or drive or even belief in the future as what uh, a characteristic of common founders is being a visionary. So you're able to, in your mind, see the future and the future of this company and the product and all these things where somebody else is more like, you know what, I'm just here to do the machine learning parts of this or the, you know, the hardware parts of it. I'm really invested in the company, but I don't see your full vision. But being wise enough to and patient enough to allow team members to join or leave based on that condition is pretty, pretty crucial to me. That speaks well to me in particular. Yeah, I mean, every day you're not hiring someone means another day that your product's not getting built in the way that you want it to, right? Mm. You know, or you're not developing the company in the same way. And it's extremely painful to know that you've got timelines and you have places you want to get to, but you don't yet have the team that can help you get there. And it makes it very alluring to start chasing people that come in your door and are interested in working, you know, with your team. Um for for reasons that I think ultimately would be a drag later on, um, and so you know I, I can't say that it's always worked out. As you know, we're now you know almost three years old. There's definitely been been some stories of um, <laughs> it, it it not going as well as we had hoped. Um, but you know what we we do have is a is a is an understanding of why we're doing it this way, and and that you know we are all going to work as hard as we possibly can. Um, and bring in the right people um, when we find our ways to them being interested in us as well. Well, let's, since we're talking about visionary and future, let's, let's go ahead and turn to the future then. So, you know, what's on the horizon for you? I know you're a month into your, into your official launch. Uh, people can actually go to get oro.com O R R O.com. And uh, I believe it's, they can get the Oro switch $200 price tag, $199. Shipping's free. I'm not trying to sell it for him. Just you know, stating the facts here. Um, they can go buy it today. You're a month in. What's on the horizon that, you know, not many people, I guess maybe, maybe most of what's on your horizon is unknown to the, you know, greater consumer base. But, 
you know, what's on the horizon for you that's not really well known that you can share today that, that gets people excited about where you're trying to go? Yeah, I think that the the next sort of major chapter in Oro is going to be um, making the things in your home that are already smart easier to use and that they're more accessible all throughout your house and then actually making them smarter. Um, so really you know, opening up what an Oro switch learns and, and understands about how you and your family use your home um, so that all the things that you already have or, or may add down the line can be can be as smart as, as possible um, with that information. So, mm-hmm. you know, for example, today, if you buy a, you know, a connected thermostat like Nest or Ecobee, uh, they don't really understand how you use the rooms of your house. And as a result, their, uh, their algorithms for controlling your heating and cooling are limited based on you know, where that thermostat is. Um, we hope to you know, be able to, to actually help them understand, you know, these rooms are used at this time. And even though that's before maybe the thermostat sees you walk by, that it should be heating your warm, your room in the, in the, in the winter months earlier than it otherwise would. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so really starting to, to bring that, that vision of the, the nervous system of your home into reality with more and more integrations. I guess one last question to close with. I mentioned in the, my, I think my, my opening question was you're going against the giants. We didn't really describe the giants, but just as a founder, how have you been able to, I guess, persevere given the Levitons and all the other existing hardware giants to just gobble you up as, as uh, Mr. Wonderful might say on Shark Tank? You know, how, how do you know, how, how are you able to operate every day with some level of sanity thinking that, you know, GE or all the other giants I don't even know of could just, uh, you know, what, what makes you keep going? I think that there are sort of three parts. One is, I think a company, as long as it has a unique mission, should always have a reason for its existence. And right now, I don't think there's any company that's out there that uh, really has an honest, incredible ability to say that they care about helping you live at home better, right? You know, whether if it's Amazon, they want to sell you things. If it's Google, they want to sell your information to somebody else to sell you things. Um, We don't have that interest. And so I, I think that we will always be able to make decisions in betterance of your experience, not in, you know, how do we, how do we get more information about you that helps us in, in the parts of our business that right now are more important. Two is that uh, because we're an independent company, we, there are things that we can do that, that other large companies would never, never think of doing, right? So uh, I don't think you're going to see Apple do integrations with Ring, right? Or, you know, you, you shouldn't have to pick uh, your, your smart home products and you know the things that are making your home life better based on which company you have allegiances to or already have the most number of products. And so if we focus on on the, the product, making the product as best as it can be for the people that use it, um, there's a, a set of things that we can do that the large companies can't do. Um, and then the last one that helps me rest a little bit safer at night, which I don't think is something that startups will ever really ever use as a sword, is that you know we... We know we're creating IP all along the way, and so we've definitely done our work there to to make sure that if and when necessary, we have you know we have some protection. So don't follow me because I got patents on this stuff. Is what you're saying? Uh, or could you know intellectual property? Don't don't go to war with me because we we've pioneered this. I think that we were the first to realize the potential of the light switch as a. Uh, that that location and the value of it. And yeah. So we've been working on that 
for a long time. Yeah. And we're far ahead of a, a lot of other folks. I, I really sort of say that patents are a protection, not as a, they're not a way to <laughs> actively defend. Prevent. Them. Yeah. They're not prevention. They're just, it's early warning signs are like, uh, it's almost like territory. Hey, this is our territory. Right. Come, yeah. come if you want, but there could be a war to ensue if, if so. Yeah, and, and you know, as a small startup, you don't have the resources to go to war with a large firm over IP. You just right. have the protection that creates um, pause. Gotcha. And, and so, if that gives us enough buffer to keep executing, that's all I need. Good deal. Well, Colin, hey, good luck to you on your uh, future iterations. I'm a fan, definitely, of the direction you're going. I think even this conversation with you helps solidify, you know, my feelings. And I think that this is a super interesting conversation to have. We did not go nearly as deep as I wanted to on some of your scars and your struggles. We talked a lot about product, but that's fun, too. But thank you so much for your time today on the show. Thank you for having me. I would uh, love to keep it going. All right, thank you for tuning into this episode of Founders Talk. If you enjoyed this show, do me a favor, go into iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, whatever you're using, favorite it, leave us a rating or a review. If you tweet, tweet a link to a friend. And of course, thank you to DigitalOcean and Discover.bot for sponsoring the show. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we're able to move fast and fix things around here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Lino Cloud Servers and to Lino.com slash changelog. Support this show. Music is by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's awesome. Check it out at changelog.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for changelog master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows in one single feed, as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again soon. Congratulations, you've listened all the way to the end of the show, and guess what? Got a little surprise for you. Here's a preview of Brain Science, our upcoming podcast coming out very soon. The easiest way to subscribe is to subscribe to our master feed at thechangelog.com slash master. Get all of our podcasts in one single feed, plus some extras that only hit the master feed, including Brain Science. Brain Science is a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain so we can understand things like behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and this thing we call the human condition. It's hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Muriel Reese, a doctor in clinical psychology. It's brain science applied not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to better our lives. Here we go. My wife and I, we've learned this, this concept of goodwill. Right. Yeah. It, I can take your feedback or your criticisms in a different light if, if I know that you have goodwill for me. Yep. Me, meaning that you're not trying to harm me, that you are for me, not against me. And sometimes change, as we all know, is painful and can be painful. So sometimes the necessary feedback and or criticism that can influence that change can also be painful. 
but I can accept it differently if I know right. that she or they or whomever is in the scenario with me has goodwill for me, you know, whereas yeah. if you know that they're not for you, then you obviously take it a whole different way. And that's, that's an okay thing. But we often are, you know, in relationship with people that are giving us crucial feedback and we need to have that kind of that lens. Like it was significant in our marriage to understand, Hey, I know there are times when you give me feedback, I am not happy about it, but, but I know you have goodwill for me. So therefore I calm down. I listen. I, you know, I take that in and I process it, whatever, but I take it in a different way because I know that she's for me and not against me. Yep. One of the key things when it comes to change is a sense of openness and even relationally, like of going, I need to be able to see some how somebody else responds or how they're feeling as based on their perspective of what they're going through and not just my perspective of their perspective. And so this goodwill is like, I believe that we're on the same side and that you're not trying to make it harder for me. But so I can understand if I were sitting where you were sitting, had the background that you had, why you would have taken it in that way. And then I can provide an opportunity to clarify or create more connection, even when it doesn't feel good. And I I honestly think this is so much of what's missing in people's relationships. If I look at relational interactions through uh, the notion of conditioning, wherein I get a sort of hit of dopamine, feel good feelings, because I went to a person, I had a conversation that didn't necessarily feel good, but there was openness on both parties to hear one another's perspective, that it actually then reinforces like, oh, when I go and I have this exchange with people, I feel better. So now I'm going to go and engage with other people and get the feedback, even if I might not like the feedback, because now I'm buffered and I'm not alone in this and I somebody else sees my world. That's a preview of Brain Science. If you love where we're going with this, send us an email to get on the list to be notified the very moment this show gets released. Email us at editors at changelaw.com. In the subject line, put in all caps, Brain Science, with a couple bangs if you're really excited. You can also subscribe to our master feed to get all of our shows in one single feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search in your podcast app for Changelaw Master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows, and even those that only hit the master feed. Again, changelaw.com slash master. Thank you.